You're listening to the New Song Students Podcast. I'm Jackson, and I'm the student pastor at New Song Church, located in Oklahoma City. We hope this message builds your faith and helps you to know God better in a greater way today. Enjoy the message. Um, But I'm so excited to be with you guys tonight. We are diving into our series um, again about the fruit of the Spirit, you know, the flesh versus the Spirit. Have you guys been liking it so far? Yes. Okay. Well, we're going to continue in that. Um, We've been talking about Galatians 5, all the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Tonight, we get to talk about faithfulness. That's our spirit aspect that we're going to talk about. And then the flesh aspect we're going to get to at the end is called compromise. All right. So, I have never felt more in line with the heart of our pastor because as I was like diving into this, it was getting chunky. I was like getting in there and I was like, ooh, I like this. I want to talk about this. I want to talk about this. Um, So I need you guys to buckle up. I need you to get ready. We're going to dive deep. Are you guys ready? We're ready. We're going to get chunky with it tonight. All right. So if you guys have your Bibles, I want to go ahead and read our text. It's going to be in Luke chapter 19, verse 11. We are going to get chunky with it, like I said, so we're going to read all the way to verse 26. You guys got this? We can handle it. I'm going to read it all so it just kind of is in our head from the start. We'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Sound good? good. All right. Well, we're doing it anyway, even if it wasn't good. So, All right. Verse 11 says this. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem. Him is Jesus that's talking here. And because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called 10 of his servants, delivered to them 10 minas, and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your minna has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities." And the second came saying, Master, your minna has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came saying, Master, here is your minna, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are in, I forgot to look this word up to say how to say it. Austere, perfect. You're an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming, I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the minute from him and give it to him who has 10 But they said to him, Master, he has ten. For I say to you that everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. God, I just thank you so much for tonight. I thank you for what you have prepared. I pray for your anointing that I would say exactly what you want said tonight. 
that I would say nothing less and nothing more. And I pray, God, that you would give each of us an anointing to sit under your word, that we would be able to hear you. We would have soft hearts and we would respond to you. And we thank you in the name of Jesus. Everybody said amen. Amen. All right. So we're going to get chunky. We're going to dive in here. So beginning in first, um, verse 11, it starts telling us the whole reason Jesus told us this story is because there's a group of people that are like us. They know about God. They've heard about God. Um, and they've started forming their own opinions. They've heard about prophecies about Jesus, um, who this Messiah is going to be, the kingdom, what is that going to look like? And they have formed an opinion. And one of those was that they thought that the kingdom was going to happen immediately. That's what verse 11 says. It says, because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately, Jesus gives this parable. And in the parable, we meet three groups of people. Everybody say three. Three. All right. The first one is the nobleman. Say nobleman. Nobleman. Perfect. The second one are the servants. Say servants. servants. All right. And later in our text that we find out like the servants, there's a group that are faithful. And then there's going to be a person that's called a wicked servant. So keep that in mind. The third type of person we meet in our story are the citizens. Say citizens. Citizens. And so verse 12 leads on and says that a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So at the beginning of our story, two promises have been made in that one little sentence. One is that the nobleman is leaving and he's going to go become a king. And the second is that he's going to come back. While he's gone, he gives these servants an assignment. In verse 13, it says, so he called 10 of his servants delivered to them 10 minutes and said to them, do business till I come. That's the assignment. They're supposed to do some business while he's away becoming king. Then an added detail is made in verse 14, and it reads, but his, noble, or, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this, main reign, this man reign over us. We already read the story, so we know that what happens is he goes away and he comes back. And when he comes back, he asks his servants, to report on what has happened with the minas that he's given him. How has it turned out? And when they do that, we find out that some of them kind of got a profit and some of them did not. And so a lot of people, when they talk about this story, they talk about stewardship and they talk about money. And I think that's a good message. Like it's not wrong. But in studying it, I really felt like God was saying there's more to this. There's, there's like a deeper message here. This message is not just about stewardship. It's about faithfulness. Um, So in diving deep, we find out that this nobleman has made a big deal promise like we talked about. He is going to go be king. That's not just like anything I'm like bouncing to go do. It's not like a mini vacation. Like I'm going to go be a king. That's a big promise. And then I'm going to come back. And then he says that while I'm gone, I need you to do an assignment. I have an assignment for you. And you are to do business And to do that, I've entrusted you with my own stuff, a minna. And when you look it up in that culture, like a minna was like a type of weight of money. And so it said like one pound was equivalent to 100 100 days worth of wages. So the nobleman didn't just leave like pocket change for his servants and be like, go be cute, do like a lemonade stand, make some money. He left them a lot of money. And so that's a big assignment that they have on their life. Um, And so verse 13 points that out, do business till I come. The Greek word used here for till is in ho, and it literally means in which, or as to say to do something in which it is consistent with it. 
AKA to do something because. So when you're reading the story, the nobleman isn't saying, here's some money and I want you to do it just to pass some time until I come back. What he's saying is, I want you to do business according to the fact, being consistent with the fact that I'm gonna come back. Another way of saying that is he's saying, I want you to believe me that I'm gonna be king and I'm gonna come back. And because you believe me, I want you to live out your life that is consistent with that belief. I want you to be faithful. He's calling, their, um, asking for them to be faithful. But that's hard because of the added details that keep happening in our story. When you read into verse 14, it says, but his citizens hated him. That's not just like, don't really like him, not really feeling him. They hated him. Hated is a strong word. And um, they sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man reign over us. So the climate that these servants are asked to be faithful, to do business, to work this minna that they've been entrusted with, is a, a culture that is counter to them. It's a culture that opposes them. Their nobleman has asked, believe me, trust in me, and be faithful, be consistent, live out your life, practice the way of Jesus, be faithful, and do it in a culture that doesn't necessarily agree with me. Does that sound familiar to anything in our life, right? That's what Jesus has done. He's given us a promise. He's declared over and over in his word that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And it says that when he died, he rose and he went and he um, is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. And he's promising us that he's going to come back. Romans 14, 11 says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Revelations 22:12 says he promises he is coming back. So just like the nobleman, Christ has given us promises, big deal promises. Um, and while we're waiting for him to come back, he didn't just leave us with nothing to do. He gave us an assignment. And just like the nobleman, he's entrusted us with some things of his own. And just like the nobleman, he has a culture of citizens that don't always agree with him, that oppose him, that hate him. Even when he was on this earth, they said people were mocking him. They hated the fact that he called himself king, and they mocked him for it. They made him a crown of thorns and put that on his head and, and mocked the fact that he was claiming to be king. They hung him on a cross and crucified him. Even now in today's culture, you talk about having a faith, being a Christian, and people mock that. People hate that sometimes. People oppose um, the things that we stand for in our faith. And a lot of people act like it's a fairy tale when we talk about Jesus coming back, that that's not really going to happen. It's a good story, but it's a story. And they deny his claims that he's going to come back. And that is the culture that we're in, that we are called, just like the servants, to be faithful in, to believe him that he is king, to believe that he's coming back, and to be faithful until that happens. Both the nobleman and Christ both ask, do you believe I will be king? Do you believe I will return? Will you live a life consistent to that belief? Are you going to be faithful? Are you going to be faithful even when other people around you don't like it? Are you going to be faithful until I come? Even if that means it's not immediate. But I really think like we still got to pause because like we understand weight is building. It's getting heavier. But there's still more levels to that. Because think about really like what their servants were getting asked to do. The citizens hated their master, and he is leaving 
they have no protection. So if they're going to go do public business, because you can't do business privately, there's somebody else involved. So at least one other person is going to know what they're doing. And so they are publicly declaring whose side they're on, right? It's like a fan fanatic. Like they are loud and proud about their team, right? Like some of you guys are repping some squads like OSU or OU or whatever. And like the more fanatic of a fan you are, the more like they're going to go on and on, tell you all the stats. They're going to say everything about them. But if their team loses, they don't get to back out of that. They don't get to say, oh, I, I was just kidding. I like don't really like them. Right? Because we all know, like, you were talking nonstop about them. You are proclaiming it. So that's what these servants are doing. Like, if they make this claim by doing business for this um, nobleman, they are saying, this is who I'm backing. And they can't back out of it. Think further of, like, what that means. Like, the citizens hated him. That means they didn't just have an opinion. It was more than that. It says that so much so that their actions started changing. They were motivated by their hate to where they chased after him. And they're going to do everything they can to stop him from being king because they don't want him to reign over them. So that means they're doing anything necessary to stop the king. So if these people are representing the him and somehow the citizens are able to stop the nobleman, able to stop him from being king, able to stop him from returning... When they come back and the nobleman's not here, what's going to happen to the servants, right? They've backed the wrong person. So a lot is at stake for them to do business and to be faithful. And that is what leads us to the setup in verse 15. And it says, and so it was when he returned, having received the kingdom, he called the servants to him. So really simply, we find out the nobleman was correct. He was honest. He did live up to the promise he had. He came back, and he came back as king. And that's when he asked the servants to give an account of what they've done. He's trying to find out, were you faithful? Did you believe in me? And were you consistent with that faith? And so the first servant steps up, and he says in verse 16 um, this. Then came the first saying, Master, your minna has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. You were faithful and very little, have authority over ten cities. I love what the nobleman said because I'm like a striver. I want to get things done. I want to check things off the list. So to me, if I was the nobleman, if I was the master, I would have been like, good job, Stuart. You were so productive. Good job, servant. You were so profitable. Good job, servant. You were successful. But that's not what he says. It wasn't about the money. It was about the faithfulness. That's what he was looking for, and that's what he rewarded the servant on. He continues um, with the faithfulness with servant number two because he rewards him in the same way. But then that's where I kind of get back to the question of, is this story really about faithfulness or is it about money? Because by the time we get to the third servant, it seems to be a lot about money because this conversation happens. The third servant is like, okay, so here's what happened. I um, thought you were, like, really harsh, really strict guy. I kind of thought you were a thief. Like, I kind of see what you do, and I, I don't know. So I thought you would be more upset if I lost your money. So I decided I was going to hide it, and so that's, that's where we're at. And the master comes back and, like, okay, 
If you really thought that's who I was, if you thought I was harsh, if you thought I was a thief, then don't you think I would at least want to make a little bit more money than what I had if I'm like stingy like that? Like, don't you think that? So that's why you should have put it in the bank. You should have earned interest because I'm going to want some money if that's who you think I am. And so, again, like all of that conversation is money. It's about a bank. It's about interest. It's about money. But I really don't think it's about money. I think there's something deeper. I think what the nobleman was saying is he was calling the servant out. He was challenging him. He was saying, okay, if you're claiming the whole reason you did nothing, that you hid my money, was because you think I'm harsh and you think I'm strict and you think I'm a thief, then your actions still are not consistent with what you claim. You are still not being faithful to what you say you believe in me. Because if you were, you should have at least made me some money in the bank. He's calling out his motives. He's calling out his faithfulness. The reality of what is revealed in the accounts is that each of the servants, um, like well, two of them, had faith in the nobleman, and one didn't. Two of them believed that the nobleman was going to be king and he was going to come back. And so they believed they were going to have to give an account and um, they would have to be faithful for that. The third obviously had like a way different experience with the master or a way different interpretation of who he was. And so his life was way different and he gets called something different because of those things. The nobleman freely gave all of his servants of his own. All of them got the same thing to start with. Like, or they all got what they didn't have that belonged to the nobleman. The nobleman also gave all of them the exact same promise. And he gave all of them this hope that he was going to come back as a king. And he, all, he left all of them with the same assignment to conduct business and to be faithful. And that's what Christ has done. For every single person in here, Christ has given the same promise. That he is king and he's coming back. Yeah. And he's given the same gifts to all of us in the sense that he gave us all his spirit. He gave us all the same hope and the same promise. And he's given all of us the same assignment to be faithful until he comes. The question is, is when he comes back, like the nobleman did, is he going to find a faithful servant? I think the only way we can really say yes to that is if we understand what faithfulness is. So we're going to look to our handy-dandy Uh, Webster's Dictionary, and uh, faithfulness says, is this, it's steadfast in affection or allegiance, firm in adherence to promises or an observance of duty. I also looked up steadfast in the definition, because I hate when definitions like have a word, you're like, I think I know what that means, but I don't know how to use it without saying the word, so I looked it up just to make sure we're all on the same page. Steadfast also means firmly fixed, not subject to change, to be firm in belief and determination. So faithfulness is being anchored. It's being sure. It's being certain. It's being fixed and consistent. Faithfulness is sure. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the evidence of things hoped for and being certain of what we do not see. And I think an easy, like, comparison to that would just be like, well, obviously the opposite of faithfulness is unfaithfulness, like not being faithful. But I think the reality is, is our flesh doesn't just crave not wanting to be faithful. Our flesh goes deeper, and it wants to compromise. And so the opposite of faithfulness is really compromise. Compromise means to accept standards that are lower than desirable. It's a concession. 
A quote I found online about compromise says, it's simply changing the question to fit the answer. Another study said compromise is redefining. So Romans 12, 2, it, it warns about this. It says, don't be conformed to the patterns of the world, but be transformed. And I think it's easy when we look to the story, we look to the faithful servants and be like, okay, obviously, like, faithfulness is better. It's going to afford you some different things. But I think, and, like, we might say, like, that's obvious. I want to be faithful. I don't want to compromise. But I think if, unless we, like, really understand even beyond the definition we just gave, if we don't understand what compromise really is, we are going to fall into it. We're not going to even maybe realize that we've done it to begin with. So I think we have to answer that. And I think that's, that goes back to answering, you know, how did that servant who had the same master as the other two faithful, how did he have him and get the same promises, get the same assignment, and somehow experience it so differently to the point where he is no longer called a faithful servant. How does that happen? And I think it goes back to compromise. So if you guys are taking notes, I have five points about compromise that I want you to write down. And so we'll dive into that. Point number one is compromise happens when you have a distorted view. So our servant, the unfaithful one, the wicked servant, he had a way different view than the other two. It talks about in our text that he thought he was harsh and strict. But the reality, I think, is that the nobleman was the exact opposite of yeah. that. He was generous. Yeah. He was gracious. Like, um, he generously gave to all of his servants his own. Remember about the minna? Like, it wasn't pocket change. It was a lot of money. Yeah. So that's generosity. That's grace. He filled them in on his plans. You know, they're servants. He doesn't owe them anything. He could have literally left them like, I need you to do this job. You don't have to worry about where I'm going or when I'm coming back, but just do this. But he filled them in on his plans. Yeah. He gave them a hope. He gave them a promise to hold to. That's grace. Yes. He rewarded each servant not based on success. And like, you have to give me this amount of money and I'll give you this. And it's like a, a scale. He did it just by being faithful. They got a reward. That's grace. It's also grace the fact that the unfaithful servant didn't get what he deserved. The Bible talks about, or in this culture, what was really common is like, if you did not earn money, you were actually stealing money. Because think about it, like this master, all the other servants made him money. And so the reality that this servant just kept it hidden and made nothing means that he robbed his master of what he could have made. And so by law in that culture, what he could have done is made that servant pay for every lost wage that he had. But he doesn't. He just removes what was already not his to begin with. And what he was not faithful in. That's grace. The fact that he didn't make him pay more. But the fact is, if I don't understand who Christ really is, if I don't understand rightly and I have a distorted view, I'm not going to be able to respond rightly. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast um, the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. The view that we should have of God is that he's faithful. So faithfulness says God is faithful, and what he promises he will do. Compromise distorts God's image. It says he's going to change, and he says, it says he is unfaithful. Point number two, if you're writing it down, say compromise occurs when promise is questioned. So the servant is saying things like, will the master really return? Is he really king? Is Jesus really king? Did he really die for me? 
Satan is all up in this area of questioning because the very first thing he ever did to humans it was in the garden in Genesis with Eve. And the thing he says is, did God really say? He's getting her to compromise because he's questioning the promise. He's questioning what God is saying. Faithfulness says God says what he means and he will do what he says. Compromise says God is a liar. Point three, if you're taking notes, compromise occurs through redefining. So this point, it kind of continues on in that questioning of point number two. It's you're asking, did God say this? And instead of just ending it there, you continue with the thought and you're like, you know what? I think God said this. I think what God really meant was this. For our unfaithful servant, he was saying, you know what? I think my master is harsh. I think he's strict. So I know he told me to do business, but he also has to know that his citizens hate him. So obviously, like, I'm not in a safe environment. He obviously wants me around to serve him. So he wouldn't want me to risk my life. He wouldn't want me to risk this money. So I think what he meant was I just need to protect what I have. I need to be safe. And and that's what he probably meant. He's redefining the narrative. He's redefining the assignment. If we're not careful with compromise, we will work ourselves into a belief that God needs correction. That like he miscalculated, he misspoke, that somehow he doesn't understand what's going on in your life and you need to clarify it for him. Sometimes what that looks like is we redefine what sin is. We keep pushing this line and, and we keep saying, well, technically, I think this. Like technically, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to step on some toes in a second, but buckle up. Compromise says, like technically, like as long as I don't have sex, I'm still pure. Like, I can do everything else. We can be alone. We can touch. We can kiss. We can make out to where, like, we're right on that line. And as long as I don't have sex, I'm still pure. I'm still a virgin. And that's fine. That means I didn't sin because I didn't go all the way. Sin makes you redefine. Compromise makes you redefine the, the lines of sin. And you start saying things like, well, what is standard? What is love? You know, God's love. So as long as it looks like love, if it feels like love, that's love. Or maybe it's not like clearly sin. Maybe it really isn't sin, but it's just like it's not the, like the best way. And so maybe you're compromising and you're saying, you know, technically the important thing is that I'm in church. I'm in the building. That's what matters. It doesn't matter if I get distracted. It doesn't matter if I can't hold my bladder five times in service and I have to go to the bathroom for a bathroom break. It doesn't matter if be real pops on. I can't miss one day of it because I have to be like everybody else socially. I have to let everybody else know what I'm doing, right? That's not necessarily sin, but technically you're saying God didn't have something for you tonight. God wasn't going to talk to you tonight because you're in the bathroom. You're not sitting under his word, right? Sin makes you redefine those moments because technically it's just the fact that I showed up. That's all that matters. God sees my heart right? Compromise also looks like you're redefining what God is saying to you. It's those moments of like the Holy Spirit. You just know, like you know in your gut, he was like, go talk to that person. And instead of doing that, you're like, I don't even know them. Um, Maybe that was me. I don't think that was God. I don't think he would have asked me to do that because that's uncomfortable. And you redefine what he's asking. 
Um, I'm reading this book called Revival Fire, and it's really, really good. It's about revivals, and um, super, like, gets you amped when you're reading it. But uh, one of the stories I really like in it because it just talks about how, like, as humans, we are so easily um, slipping into this area of compromise where we just naturally challenge what God is saying to us and, and just try and redefine that. And so that's what this story is real quick. It says, in 1951, in City Bell, Argentina, Edward Miller, a Pentecostal missionary, tells of a revival breaking out after God told him to take his small church and pray every night from 8 p.m. to midnight. Their little group prayed. No one seemed to have any leading except one lady. She felt she was told to hit the table, but she wouldn't do anything so strange. On the fourth night, Ed Miller led the group in singing around the table and hit the table as they sang. Eventually, others did the same. Then the lady did. Immediately, the Spirit of God fell. I think sometimes we compromise, not just in sin, but we even compromise what God is saying um, because God says some things that we don't understand. God says some things that challenges culture. God says some things that is counter to like our comfortability. And so we can compromise ourselves right out of what God is wanting to do in you and what he's wanting to do through you because it just doesn't sit comfortably in our mind. Faithfulness says ultimately that I trust God, I trust Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Compromise says I trust myself and myself alone. Number four, compromise occurs through impatience. So in one of the weeks, uh, Pastor Jackson talks about those quick fixes. And I think this is the area of compromise that fits in. It's, it's not wanting to endure the process of the promise because we don't value the process. It's wanting to, like, I'm worried about what's happening now. Forget about the future. Now matters. Like, how I feel now in this moment is more important. So compromise in this area says... You know, I want that. I'm not going to work for it. I, I'm just, I want it now. I deserve it now. So I'm going to steal it because it takes too much time and effort to work for something honestly. Compromise says stop praying for your miracle because it's taken too long. You've prayed it too many times and nothing seems to happen. Yeah. And so instead of being persistent, you want it now. And compromise says stop doing it. Compromise says, hang out with a group of friends you're not supposed to. You know they're a bad influence. You know every time uh, you hang out with them, you just leave feeling like icky. But they are the popular people at school. They're the people that have the reputation. They're the people that everyone goes to. And now high school is your life. And, you know, that, that's what high school is all about. It's about who you know. It's about your reputation. And so now it's important. I know I'm not supposed to do it, but... If I don't, I'm going to miss out on all these things. And so you compromise. Faithfulness says I'm eternally focused, but compromise is concerned about the immediate only. And number five, compromise cost, faithfulness fulfills. What we think when we compromise is we think we're actually getting something, right? Like if my boyfriend or if my girlfriend's pressuring me on sex, well, I don't want to lose that relationship because I love them, and so I'm going to do it. And you think you've gained this relationship, but you have lost yourself. You've given yourself away what you didn't want to give away. Compromise says, like, you know, like, I'm going to get these group of friends. They're going to like me if I just do this. But you changed who you are. You lost yourself. The unfaithful servant, he hid money, and he thought that by compromising, by hiding it, he was going to, 
be rewarded, but he lost what he had. The faithful servants were the ones that um, were fulfilled. They got to keep what they were naturally given, and they got to get even more. Compromise always costs. I think it's easy when we read stories like this to be like, okay, yeah, yeah, I want to be faithful, but like the reality is I think I compromise too much and too easily. And we, we read stories, or at least I do in the Bible, where like I read about people and I'm like, there is no way ever I will be that faithful. Like there is no way I will ever be like Paul or, or David or Peter or any of those. Like they just seem like these superhuman Christians. Have you guys ever felt like that? Yes. Yeah? Like um, in Hebrews 11, there's like a hall of faith, and it's literally a trophy room of faithful Christians. Like the best of the best, they're the elite, they made it there. And so you read people like Sarah, where it says, By faith, Sarah conceived and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. You read about faithful people like Moses who forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, but choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Or David, who made the hall of faith for his faithfulness. And and you read about those people, and you're like, there is no way. Like, I want to be faithful, but there is no way I'm going to ever measure up to that. Like, I cannot live that life. Um, But the reality is, is if you read their stories, they had huge moments of compromise really big moments like Sarah Sarah had this conversation with God and he was like girl I know you're old I know you're dusty um, but I'm gonna make you a baby (laughs) and uh, so she's like all right I want that that sounds good she's all pumped she's excited she got a word from the Lord and so she goes on but time happens and that promise is still not here and so Sarah compromises And she begins to have a a different view of the Lord. It says that she starts saying things like, he's withholding this from me. And so she has a distorted view. And because of this distorted view, she continues to compromise. And she begins to redefine that promise. And so she tells her servant, go sleep with my husband. You'll get a baby. And because you're my servant, that baby is going to be my baby. And sure enough, it happens. But you would think, you know, that's what she asked for. She'd be happy jumping up and down. But Sarah's jealous because what she wanted, she thought she wanted it so bad, but she got it through compromise. And so it didn't feel the same. Or Moses, before he was faithful and led the people of Israel out of Egypt, he was compromising what God was saying to him. God met him around the burning bush and he was like, Moses, you're my guy. I'm going to use you. You're going to free my people from Egypt. And he was like, no, 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 no. I got to clarify something. It's like, you are the wrong guy. I stutter. There is no way I'm going to be the person to talk to Pharaoh and convince him to let your people go. Like, he's compromising what God is saying to him. Or David, this faith-filled man that the Bible talks about, he's a man after God's own heart. That guy had a whole lot of compromise. And it all happened, like, in a couple days or one day. Like, it was a bad day. So he was king. And he decided to compromise that assignment one day because the king was supposed to go out to war. And he, he did what a lot of us do. He was like, I'm tired. I'm tired of being a Christian. I just want to stay home. I'm tired of being a king. Like, I'm tired of always having to do the right thing. Like, just this once, I want to do the wrong thing. And so he stays home. And because he compromised and opened up this door, more things he's getting exposed to than he probably would have otherwise. And so 
One of those is he sees Bathsheba, and she's bathing, and he likes what he sees. And so he invites her over, and he has sex with her. And that was outside of marriage. Big old compromise. But then it was worse because she was married to another guy. And so out of their sexual relationship, she gets pregnant. David does what a lot of us do. He doubles down. Instead of repenting, he then sends a letter to the front lines of the war and says, send her husband Uriah to the front so that he dies. Then it covers it up. I don't got to worry about it. He's out of my life. And so he's basically signing up to murder him. That is a big old compromise after compromise after compromise. So my question is, how do people like that get their name in the hall of faith? Why are they commended for being faithful? And here's why, if the band wants to come up. Lamentations 3.22 through 23 says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is the promise that our master gives us for our spirit versus flesh dilemma. Our flesh craves compromise, but our spirit wants to walk in faithfulness. But we're at war with that. But this is the hope and the promise. The only reason we can be faithful is because Christ was faithful first. Christ died on the cross for our sins, and he like of anybody in this world, could have compromised. He could have been on the cross and been like, you know what? To be honest, these people, they're not going to be faithful to me. Not all the time. There are going to be some of them that will never actually choose me. And so he could have got off the cross, and no one could have said anything. <laughs> no one could have griped because it was, we were the ones who were wrong. But the Bible talks about for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, and he remained faithful. And it also talks about that when he died and rose again on his way to heaven, just like the nobleman, as he was leaving, he gives promises. Jesus did. And he says, I'm sending you a helper. I'm sending you my spirit, the same spirit that helped me be faithful. I'm now giving it to you. And so the only reason we're faithful is because Christ was faithful first. And he gives us the very thing we need to be faithful. So anytime we compromise... The hope that we have is that Christ was faithful first and that his faith is greater still. That he can redeem any moments of compromise, any moments. So David, who compromised and compromised and compromised, gets in the hall of faith. And none of those compromises are mentioned, but his faithfulness is. Sarah compromises and compromises and compromises. And none of that is mentioned after she repents. But instead, her name is in the hall of faith. God can redeem any moment of compromise. Like the nobleman, Christ is a faithful master. He has freely given us so much of his own. He's left us with a promise that he is king and he's coming back. And he's asked us to live a certain way as we're waiting for that day. To be faithful, to live a life where we're practicing the way of Jesus um, with the hope that he is going to come back. But is he going to come back to a faithful servant or a compromised one? Hebrews 10, 36 declares, For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet in a little while, he who is coming will come and not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. 
but we are not of those who draw back to sin, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. We are not called to be people of compromise. We're called to be people of faithfulness. Tonight, like if our altar ministers want to go ahead and come up, our leaders, um, I think this is maybe one of the biggest tests of compromise right now. I believe like God is calling you back to faithfulness. Like if you've ever lived in compromise, whether that compromise is like obvious sin or maybe you're just compromising because you're refusing to be obedient to the things that God has asked you to do. Whatever that compromise looks like, I know God is faithful and that he's, the Holy Spirit has been nudging you like as I've been talking. And he does that not to bring shame. He doesn't do it to break you down. He does it because he's saying like, hey, that, that right there, that compromise, I'm faithful. I'm more faithful than that, and I can redeem that. I'm better than that, and there's a better way. And that's why he's pointing out those moments of compromise. But I can guarantee you, probably even now, more than throughout the whole message, there is another voice in your head, and it's the enemy. And he is offering one more chance to compromise, to say that, like, tonight, you don't have to deal with it tonight. Go home, maybe. Deal with it then. You don't have to do it in public. Or he's saying things like, you know what, honestly, what you've done, it's really not that big of a deal. I don't even know if I would call it sin. And he's telling you, you know what? You don't need to pray with a leader. In fact, if you come down and pray with a leader, everyone is going to think the worst of you. They're going to think you've done like the worst thing imaginable. And you don't want to be embarrassed like that. He's going to say things like that to compromise. Or maybe he's saying, you know what? You have compromised too many times, too much. And there is no way any of that is going to be redeemed. And he's whispering moments for you to compromise again and again and again. But I'm trying to tell you tonight, like, God is saying something else. He is saying, I was faithful first, and my faithfulness is greater still. There is nothing that you have ever done or will ever do that my faithfulness cannot cover. And he's calling you back to a spirit of faithfulness that, like, I don't have to walk in compromise anymore. I don't have to lean into my flesh that wants to do that. There is a better way, and I can lean into the spirit, the same spirit that kept Jesus on the cross, and I can be faithful to what he has called me to do. So I invite you tonight, like if you want to make any of those moments or if there's anything else going